Hey up. March was a big month for iced coffee with the short story I told in the Moth in Melbourne Grand Slam event in June 2018 going to air across North America as part of an episode of the Moth Radio Hour. This brought an unexpected but most welcome five-fold bump in the March downloads as compared to the download mode for the past 12 months. Articles and videos published at the Letters from the Ends of the Earth website have also pointed new ears in my direction and the accumulating high latitudes content there is well worth your time. If you're one of the new listeners, welcome to the Dive Hut. Given that it's taken me six years to get what would only constitute the halfway mark in recounting Antarctic history if I wasn't really prone to digression, you're not late to the party. Assuming the profane and opinionated content doesn't see you give me up as a foul-mouthed blowhard, we have many years ahead of us, so I'll get the brew on. In the wake of the newly promoted Rear Admiral's epic expedition, the US State Department remained reticent about territorial claims in Antarctica. Bird fired the imaginations of his many compatriots, but the government continued to look on the white continent with indifference, and the pressing problems posed by the onset of what would come to be called the Great Depression called for government detention more than the antics of any jumped-up Rear Admiral Popinjay. The British Commonwealth, on the other hand, found tremendous inspiration in American efforts in the South, with the Hudson's Bay Company only awaiting clarification on the legal jurisdiction regarding marine resources south of Australia before seeking to exploit them, and the Norwegian whaling companies expanding their operations annually, and Bird pissing on the lampposts wherever his aircraft could take him, the Australian government finally heeded Sir Douglas Mawson and John King Davis's sustained calls to claim the territory they explored 15 years previous. 1929 lay beyond the time in which letters patent satisfied British legal minds of a watertight case for annexation. Orders in council, Mawson's suggestion to make good on his previous unofficial claiming ceremonies, also failed to meet the legal need in the age of the Hughes Doctrine, and Mawson received instructions to make preparations for a new voyage, one looking out for the interests of Britain, Australia and New Zealand, and the pleasingly acronymous Banzari will get its own episodes in coming months. Meanwhile, new build factory whaling vessels were heading south, their bespoke stern ramps leading to flensing plans comprising wooden decking, replaced each season to reduce the stench of entrained blood and entrails, where carcasses were managed by cables running off the drums of multiple donkey engines, the small, high-revving, high-torque, low-finesse steam engines, taking their horsepower off a reticulated steam pipe system from a common boiler. Blubber curtains drawn off the dead rockles were cut into 20-pound slabs and fed into the rendering boilers through holes in the deck, down which an inattentive flenser might easily fall, thereby becoming part of, and slightly diminishing the quality of, the resulting oil for that day's efforts. Coopers were gradually pushed out of the industry as whaling concerns switched to bulk transport for their oil, and the barrel yards at whaling stations were left to fall into disrepair in the shadows of the giant storage tanks the factory vessels now fed. A field of fraying staves and heads still marks the workplace of the last coopers to operate at Deception Island, but the weather will eventually erase all trace of their presence, unless a volcanic eruption covers the lot with pyroclastic debris first. Deception Island has time on its side, either way.
Norway, seeking to reinforce its industrial stake in the south, sent Hjalmar Riesel-Larsen south to join the Norvegian in exploratory transits and seaplane flights, with territory claiming and flag dropping, as was the style at the time, further putting the wind up Commonwealth Mandarins, and his efforts will receive their due attention after I attend to the Banzari episodes. Also, meanwhile, a quick look at the stillbirth of the Antarctic tourism industry, which was trying and failing to get off the ground figuratively, at around the same time Wilkins and Bird were trying to do the same thing literally. The 6,000-tonne Swedish-built, Norwegian-owned Stella Polaris constituted the first custom-built cruise ship. Previously, passenger liners would be sent cruising during seasonal lulls in transport demand, and the developing market for tour voyaging encouraged Norway's Bergen Line to take a risk on commissioning a ship dedicated to carrying a small number of passengers at a sedate pace, the exact opposite of the goals of liner design which called for large numbers of passengers transported as quickly as possible. During its early career, the Stella Polaris featured three crew for every guest, with luxury and service standing as the operation's point of difference in the cruising market. In 1928, the company started circulating advertising material about a 143-day world cruise to depart Southampton in 1930. Besides all the normal cruising destinations, this voyage intended visits to the Auckland Islands and the Ross Ice Shelf, both firsts as tourist destinations. The copy regarding this unique offering waxed lyrical about the opportunities to see the whaling fleets in action in the Southern Ocean, to marvel at the impressive flanks and glacial tongues of Mount Erebus, and to visit the historic huts of McMurdo Sound, and to visit Little America, which might still serve as an operational station by the time the Stella Polaris arrived in the Bay of Wales. The company engaged Joseph Stenhouse, last mentioned in the series as captain of the Aurora in support of the Ross Sea Party of the ITAE, to command the Stella Polaris. While any number of captains might successfully pilot a vessel of the Stella Polaris' modest size around the world, the number who could safely pilot it through the pack ice belt of the Ross Sea and negotiate the particular challenges of McMurdo Sound was limited. Stenhouse's association with Sir Ernest Shackleton added a dash of heroic age romance to the endeavour. On tangential notes, Stenhouse married Aeneas McIntosh's widow in 1923 and joined the Discovery Committee, captaining the Discovery on its oceanographic voyages in 1927. With the cheap seats on the Stella Polaris going at 2,500 US dollars, and the luxury suites demanding 6,000 US dollars. This stood as an elite trip in an already elite market. Half of the people putting their hands up for the 100 berths available were women, among them Emily Dorman, widow of Sir Ernest Shackleton. While this ratio of male to female guests wasn't anything unusual in the cruising industry, the voyage stood to put the first female feet ashore on the Antarctic continent. The Great Depression killed off a lot of investments in the cruise industry and a lot of people ditched their ticket deposit to avoid having to pay the balance. With insufficient berths filled to turn a profit, the trip never happened, though the Stella Polaris went on to a long and illustrious career in cruising, maintaining a high standard of service and carrying a cachet few vessels have since managed to match 
as the number and size of vessels built specifically for the cruising industry gradually outstripped those built for passenger lines. The Stella Polaris was captured by the German Navy during the Second World War and became a floating holiday camp and knocking shop for U-boat crews, returning to its Norwegian owners when Germany surrendered. The Stella Polaris spent its final years on top of the sea as a floating restaurant in Japan before an attempt to make the vessel seaworthy in preparation for a return to Norway led to an accident while under tow that saw the graceful pioneer lying in 70 metres of water off the coast of Nippon. Antarctic tourism would get off the blocks, but not in the late 1920s. Following the British Imperial Antarctic Expedition, see episode 61, Maxime Lester returned to service in the Merchant Navy, but his Antarctic survey work saw him recruited into the ongoing projects run by the Discovery Committee in the mid-1920s. Lester served aboard the William Scoresby and the Discovery II, a new build ship, the first built from the keel up as an oceanographic research vessel, launched in Glasgow in 1928 and commissioned in 1929 to carry on the whale biology research and southern ocean oceanography previously entrusted to the Discovery, the ship that served as both transport and accommodation during Robert Falcon Scott's first Antarctic expedition. Through the second half of the 1920s, the Discovery Committee researchers researched and published on the topics of Southern Ocean blue and fin whales, elephant seals, South Georgia birds, and whale parasites. Committee research continued on the Great Vegan Flensing Plan, while the committee ships continued their work sounding the Southern Ocean, dart tagging whales, and sampling with plankton nets, trawl nets, grab samplers, and Van Dorn water samplers. James Marr also spent much of the second half of the 1920s working for the Discovery Committee, tending to the oceanographic program during voyages aboard the Discovery and the William Scoresby. His strong work ethic and sharp scientific mind saw him quickly outgrow the image of a plucky Boy Scout heading off on a boy's own adventure with Sir Ernest Shackleton, and by the end of the decade he was a recognised expert in Antarctic marine ecology and respected as a hard-case mariner. Ma is slated to play a supporting role in episodes currently in development and will play a central role when Operation Tabarin comes under the ice coffee spotlight. Also meanwhile, Duncan Cass chose to go to sea after finishing his education in a posh school, his Etonian cadence contrasting starkly with the hard life and the associated patois of the forecastle. He served much of his apprenticeship to become an AB aboard the William Scoresby and Cass will play a supporting role in several coming episodes before getting his time centre stage when the series works into the 1960s. Also meanwhile, while James Wordy knocked back the opportunity to waste time with and endure the ribbing of Sir Ernest Shackleton aboard the Quest, he was far from done with high latitudes exploration and research and undertook a series of carefully planned and executed Arctic voyages through the 1920s. These expeditions increased scientific knowledge of Arctic topography and gave valuable early career experience to Wordy's Cambridge students, among them Henry George Gino, Watkins, Vivian Fuchs and John Rymill. These voyages will get their share of attention as the series prepares to address the British Graham Land Expedition, Operation Tabarin and the Commonwealth Transantarctic Expedition. 
Also, meanwhile, sexism and racism, long part of the Antarctic culture because sexism and racism were part of the cultures of the home nations of the people who went south, continued in Antarctica through the 1920s. It never occurred to sealers and whalers to take women aboard their ships as anything other than life support systems for orifices, and heroic era expeditions never considered taking women south because sailing and exploring was men's work, though this never received any thought beyond autonomous mental subroutines until Marie Stopes, paleobotanist, family planning protagonist and eugenics advocate, asked to join Robert Falcon Scott in his second Antarctic foray. Stokes correctly saw the tremendous potential for Antarctic paleontology to push forward humanity's understanding of Earth history and made her request while dancing with Scott at a fundraising event in Edinburgh in 1910. While the request warranted note for its novelty at the time, Scott's response went unrecorded because patronising platitudes about a woman's place constituted a loud humming sound in the overall background noise of Victorian Britain and therefore didn't warrant recording as anything out of the ordinary. Scott, instead of placing himself at the centre of a powerful positive historical narrative, went south without yet another of his nation's leading scientific minds that was willing to devote itself to advancing British interests in Antarctica, if only those in charge weren't so Clements Markham. Markham's and wider society's opprobrium regarding women doing anything other than housekeeping and child raising, in that order, were moot because Marie Stokes' request never made it past the first hurdle. With the Stella Polaris project also failing to get any women to the continent, the ice coffee narrative remains half a decade away from recounting the first woman's footprints in continental Antarctic snows. Robert Lanier's sustained attempts to be the first black man in Antarctica didn't succeed during any of Bird's toing and froing, but Bird still managed to sustain racism on the ice without him by failing to curb the anti-Semitism endured by aircraft mechanic Benny Roth. As with Scott's treatment of Marie Stokes' request to head south, this was the mode of the culture in the era, but an explanation isn't an excuse. Bird's expedition marking, as it did, the first big strides towards permanently occupied Antarctic bases, sets me thinking about how base culture, being an isolated microcosm of the cultures left at home, tends to lag behind in terms of the social changes that happen in whatever homeland that base represents. I have friends with Greek heritage who, growing up in Melbourne, received an education in Greek culture that left them decades out of step with the Greek nation when they headed to the Mediterranean to visit their extended family. And I hear the same is true when similarly geographically isolated pockets of culture keep alive the traditions and mores the families carried across oceans with them. So it's not surprising that accepted levels of sexism and racism at Antarctic stations tend to lag behind those tolerated in the home nation of those stations. I've seen it firsthand and have read about the pattern repeating across stations regardless of the cultural footing, and I'd be surprised if that lag changes anytime soon. That doesn't mean Antarctic stations are still playing out the Victorian era, or the Soviet era, or the apartheid era but they're definitely not the factions leading their home nations out of those eras. There's a lot of sexism and racism yet to recount in the series, in the same sense that there's a lot of sexism and racism to be combated in the world outside Antarctica. In returning to Richard Bird in future episodes of Ice Coffee, we'll see that he did more, through his writing and public pronouncements, 
than his fair share of enshrining Antarctica as a male bastion, where manly men went to be manly, generating a mythos about the conditions and hardships that wasn't true then, and remains untrue now, no matter how many manly men wish it was true. With those bumly elements of historical craculence accounted for, for now, I'll turn to recent adventures in heating water. I spent a lot of my youthful weekends and holidays hiking in the wild places of my home state of Victoria, with occasional forays into the wild places of Tasmania and New South Wales. During those trips, I cooked on a Swedish-designed methylated spirit stove called the Tranja. With no moving parts, this stove proved easy to use and maintain, and while I recently replaced the burner after the first one finally disintegrated under the load of 30 years of rough travel and being set alight, the unit carries on in the style of my grandfather's axe, which had three heads and four helves. My Trangia carries on, a backwoods ship of Theseus. I described how methylated spirits transports less energy per unit carried than paraffin or gasoline in the first episode of the series, but that's never been much of a problem as I've never usually gone more than a handful of days out of reach of civilization with my stove. So even when I have run out of fuel, I haven't stood much chance of dying of dehydration and almost no chance of dying of hypothermia in the places and the seasons I carried the Trangia with me. In learning to travel and camp in the snow, I needed to up my stove game and an MSR white spirit stove became the weapon of choice in cooking my food, melting my water and most importantly, making my coffee. The priming system took some getting accustomed to, and I remember some exciting moments with smoky yellow flames and frantic fiddling about, until I got the hang of the thing, but it served me well at high elevations and latitudes for 18 years. I already described how I learnt to use a primer stove, units little changed in the century since they first went south aboard ships of the heroic age. When I did my field training in Windless Bight near Scott Base, and that technology's been the oral theme of the series since it kicked off. But Jeff Maynard recently placed in my care a 1940s era Coleman stove he received from a collection of Sir Hubert Wilkins' former possessions. Wilkins did a lot of testing of cold weather equipment for the US Army and it's thought this stove, a personal unit suitable for use in remote settings for extended periods using whatever fuel came to hand, came into Sir Hubert's possession via that route. Jeff intends using it to brew up while visiting the area where Wilkins grew up and offered me the opportunity to try the unit out. I prevaricated on this matter for several months because while I do appreciate the bonuses that come with pressurised fuel stoves, I'm also wary of them. The MSR has more moving parts and requires more maintenance than the Trangia, and Wilkins Coleman stove has more moving parts than the MSR. More stuff for me to break or misuse, and therefore, more opportunities to set myself alight with volatile organics, as per Tuck Bien Duk. I can do the cross-legged bit, but the sitting still and calmly burning to death is probably beyond me. I dismantled and examined every part, and it really is a nicely engineered piece of kit, with spare parts sufficient to keep the stove going in remote situations, cleverly stoved within the priming pump arm, and the variable output managed by a threaded wheel that adjusts the fuel flow, is a tidy solution to the problem of burning the bum off everything you put on the stove, that the Trangia equivalent, while simple, could never match in elegance. 
The main problem I have with the stove is that in keeping it small, the designers placed the fuel tank directly beneath the bit that goes on fire, and given the instructions told me to use gasoline if available, I didn't like that one bit. BLEVI is the acronym for Boiling Liquid Expanding Vapour Explosion. It's what happens when a fuel tank catches fire and heats its own contents beyond the boiling point before rupturing, and the resulting rapidly expanding cloud of burning gas flattens everything nearby. My father worked in flammability research for the Commonwealth Scientific Industrial Research Organisation for most of his career, and the video footage he brought home of various burns he ran, both in the lab and outdoors, there put the wind up me. He had an awesome fun job that I'm sure kept him out of trouble for pyromania, but it made him, and one removed me, very wary of putting ourselves in situations where we might burn to death, Blevies being the highest situation on that list. I opted for kerosene, a very small quantity of kerosene. I did sit cross-legged as I set the stove up, but I ensured I had long trousers, woolen pullover, heavy boots, safety goggles and woolen beanie in place before I started. I also ensured I had a dry powder extinguisher and a charged fire hose to hand, primed and only waiting for a touch on the branch to unleash cooling torrents of flame suppressing goodness should everything go to bollocks and my bollocks catch fire. I also had my tin mug, my coffee press and some nice dark roast at the ready as I opened the valve, let the priming bowl fill, closed the valve and put the match to the flammables. The Coleman unit worked like a charm in the mechanical sense, all procedures outlined in the instructions running smoothly, and in the chemistry sense, with kerosene converting to a tidy blue flame directed by the well-designed burner head, bringing my coffee into existence in far less time than the Trangia or even the MSR could ever hope to do. The thing roars like the jet engine afterburner ring that the burner head so closely resembles, and while that's a lot noisier than the silent Trangia, it's not orders of magnitude louder or more frightening than the other pressure stoves I'm accustomed to. Where the Coleman unit kept itself ahead of the field in the I'm not doing that again stakes is in that the fuel tank did become significantly hot during the short spell I used it. I couldn't turn the wheel to vary the flame intensity without gloves to protect my fingers from the heat that it absorbed. I could handle the fuel tank without the gloves but I don't like that such a mass of metal and fuel became as hot as they did in the course of making a single cover. In the snow, this wouldn't be a problem, and in a blizzard, I suspect it would prove a boon. But in the dry heat of South Australia in high summer, I'd use this for a one-off ceremonial brew-up, if I was you, Jeff. It could be Sir Hubert didn't use it to the point of disintegration for a reason. While in Sydney to give presentations about diving under Antarctic sea ice and to visit museums, I was privileged to meet, eat with and enjoy the overnight hospitality of Dr Andrew Atkin, whose doctoral thesis focused on the scientific output of Louis Bernacchi. Common ground in Antarctic experiences, historical interests and scale model hobbies saw me enjoy his company more than even our enjoyable correspondence led me to anticipate. Here's the interview I recorded with him. Dr. Andrew Atkin at his home in Sydney. He got in touch with me several months ago and said, I'm enjoying the series. If you happen to be in Sydney, um, we'll get together. And I took him at 
face value and then some and lobbed myself onto his spare bed. So, Andrew, can you tell the listeners how you built your very strong connection to Antarctica? Sure. I, I first went to Antarctica in 1999 as a tourist and I was going really for the natural science and the landscapes. I'm a bit of a bird guy. So it was really to get into the natural world down there. And when I got there, we visited some of the historic huts of the Ross Sea region. And I realized the dreadful paucity of my knowledge of Antarctic history of the early explorers. Uh, So I set about to correct that by doing a bit of reading and I got sucked into some vortex, which uh, has led me to where I am today. So I've become a bit of a Antarctic history obsessive. As the best of us are. Um, The steps in developing that interest took you first to Canterbury University? Uh, So it was 1999, I went first to Antarctica and then I, in 2007 and 2008, I signed up to the course in uh, the University of Canterbury in Christchurch, which at that stage was the Graduate Certificate in Antarctic Studies, basically a a three, three and a half month summer school uh, where you learnt everything important about Antarctica, covering glaciology, tourism, history, uh, environmental history of Antarctica, modern day scientific work in Antarctica, the biology of Antarctic wildlife, weather patterns in Antarctica. Everything was covered in great depth and detail with a really fabulous uh, bunch of academic staff and leaders. Uh, and that led to volunteer work on the good ship Lastrolab. Travelling down in 2010, I went from Hobart down to the French base Dumont de Ville and did oceanographic sampling all the way down and back. And the highlight of that was spending about eight days on the base and getting to see an emperor penguin rookery with chicks that were fledged and ready to go to sea and sampling another Antarctic base and spectacular horizons and wildlife, the whole works. So going to a very historic place, uh, visited in, what was it, 1839 by Dumont de Ville or 1840, uh, where he proclaimed part of Antarctica for France. So then after that, I proceeded to to do some doctoral studies again through Canterbury. And your doctoral thesis focused on the magnetic work of Louis Bernacchi. Yep. So I was taking a look at the scientific program on Scott's first expedition, the Discovery Expedition, 1901 to 04, and in particular looking at the magnetic work as a case study to be able to sort of pick apart what were the factors that made the scientific programs work or not work on early Antarctic expeditions. And what were those key factors? 
Well, they were pretty much all the same key factors that make science work well today. Adequate funding, sponsorship by a good institution, good leadership, good scientific leadership in particular, as opposed to expedition leadership, maybe two completely different things. Uh, the quality of instruments, the specific training of the scientific staff to use the instruments uh, and to wrangle them if things go wrong, as they did in the case of Louis Bernacchi. Uh, and really the, the planning for post-expedition analysis and publication, which is an area where many early Antarctic expeditions really dropped the ball, I think. And how do you rate Scott as a scientific leader? I, I've come to the idea that he's quite interested in the science and potentially could have been quite a good scientist himself. What, where do you come down with, with Scott in that, um, that facet of Scott's leadership? I, I think Scott's own scientific training was possibly a little lightweight to begin with. Uh, when he graduated as a lieutenant in the sort of torpedo speciality of the Royal Navy. So his qualification then would have been equivalent to a technical certificate level, probably. But I think he did develop a genuine interest in supporting the scientific programs. And uh, it sounds like from the reports that he actually engaged in some reasonable depth in scientific discussions with the, the scientific staff on the uh, both, both his expeditions. Uh, I don't think he did much science himself, but I think he fostered an environment that allowed science to proceed unhindered. Uh, so it sort of came back a bit to the calibre of the scientists that he took with him, which in most cases was pretty good. Uh, most of them were pretty well selected rather than Shackleton. Shackleton got good scientists, but by random selection rather than by uh, looking at their scientific credentials. Do you like dogs and can you sing? Being some of the questions he asked in his interviews. Exactly. I know Charles Royd's meteorological measurements didn't integrate well into the body of knowledge at the time, partly because he was running to catch up with instruments and techniques that he was completely unfamiliar with. How did Louis Bernacchi's results on the discovery, how were they received by the Royal Society? Uh, okay, the Royal Society had, had a lot of involvement with the working up of the results from Bernacchi's magnetic studies. They were generally well received when you look through very carefully in the data that's presented, there are areas where a lot of data had to be discarded. So there aren't necessarily continuous sets of data, but you've got to look at it in the context of the time because Louis Bernacchi had been with Borchgrevink on the Southern Cross expedition where he was working in a tent through the Antarctic winter as his observation post. 
So the observation, magnetic observation sequences there were very patchy uh, because of intrusive weather and uh, only having one set of instruments to fall back on and various things. Uh, but to answer your question more directly, I think the magnetic reports were well received, but they were old news. They were completely old history by the time they were published because they were published in, what, 1907-08. And so all the news was about Shackleton's Nimrod expedition getting up and the conflict that was occurring between Shackleton and Scott over uh, whether Shackleton could go to the Ross Sea area to set up his base and Scott announcing his expedition. And, of course, there was the, the North Polar news uh, because it was about the same time, I think, when claims were being made that the North Pole had been claimed. So some old magnetic science, which was pretty obscure to most people, was it was out of date and it wasn't newsworthy. So it probably got very little public acknowledgement, to be honest. Do you know much about what Bernanke did after his two expeditions to Antarctica? Yes, I do. Bernanke had a very interesting life after his expeditions to Antarctica. So after he came back in 1904 from the Discovery Expedition, he never went to Antarctica again. But he kept an interest in Antarctic matters. And uh, in 1930, he was one of the main uh, organisers of a big exhibition uh, on Antarctic matters where he called in favours from all his old Antarctic pals to get materials to exhibit. Uh, so this was at the Bruton Galleries in London uh, during the Depression. So there was a, a book published, The Polar Book, which had chapters written by important scientists like Frank Debenham, for example just giving a, a three-page synopsis, more or less, on the state of Antarctic science in the different uh, categories, glaciology, geology, biology, that sort of thing, uh, geography. Uh, Bernanke became a rubber planter, so he, I think he had a modest but constant income stream from being a rubber planter. He went in 1906 to Peru to look at some rubber plantations, eventually wound up with some, some rubber estates in Malaysia. And he actually tried to get his own expedition up in about 1925. He was proposing an expedition uh, which would have used half-track vehicles. Uh, but again, he never got the funding like many proposed Antarctic expedition, so he never got the funding. Uh, he had an involvement in the First World War. He, he was commander of a, a gunboat uh, in the Second World War. He had an involvement in uh, scientific research to do with magnetism and anti-submarine devices. Uh, he died in 1942. Wow. An interesting life. It was. And you're heading to Ushuaia shortly to take part in the SCAR gathering. 
and you'll be presenting there. Can you tell the listeners the, the, the thesis of your presentation? Okay, so SCAR is the Scientific Committee on Antarctic Research, and I'm sort of a loosely, uh, loosely associated member of a group which is the Humanities and Social Sciences Expert Group. So I'll be talking a little bit of history, just a short presentation on Karsten Borchgrevink. So Borchgrevink was a Norwegian Brit. He was living in Australia in the late 1800s. He went to Antarctica with Bull in 1895, was it? Uh, and stepped ashore at Cape Adair, claimed to be the first person to step ashore on the Antarctic continent, which has been brought into doubt on many accounts. Uh, but he became a real Antarctic enthusiast. To cut the story short, he actually got his own expedition together by getting funding from Sir George Nunes, £40,000. In one hit, he got an expedition together, the Southern Cross Expedition, went to Antarctica in, Antarctica in 1898, set up and made a camp which was the first overwintering party on the Antarctic mainland uh, ever. So this was uh, 1898, 1899. And he took along Louis Bernacchi and uh, a couple of other scientists, Klovstad, Hansen, and they successfully overwintered. The Southern Cross came back and picked them up after wintering further north. But Back in England, this expedition got very little recognition. So my thesis is that uh, in spite of the common opinion that Borchgrevink was ill-prepared and the expedition went badly, my thesis is that he was actually better prepared than the reports at the time would have you believe. He wasn't an especially good leader and he didn't know how to deal with people very well. He had a big ego. So like many Antarctic expedition leaders, he had some flaws. And I think it was because of that. He was a very brash, self-absorbed man. But I think his preparation for the expedition was very good in many, many ways. And it's sort of a shame that Cape Adair was a less than ideal place to set up such a camp. So more science could have been done and more geographical exploration could have been done had they been able to land, for example, at Wood Bay, where they landed later on the expedition after they'd been picked up. It was ice-free, amazingly. They were able to make a landing on shore at Wood Bay that would have been a much more ideal base. Uh, later expeditions couldn't get into Wood Bay because it was iced in. So it would have been a rare moment if they'd been able to land there. So in a nutshell, I'm trying to sort of restore Borchgrevink's reputation a bit. Um, 
1912, Campbell couldn't get ashore anywhere other than Cape Adair. So in spite of knowing that it didn't give access to the plateau, they, they still had to opt for Cape Adair. The, the recognition that Borschgrevink got within his lifetime, how much of that hinged on Campbell's experiences at the same site? Well, I, I think quite a lot because it was only after Scott's Northern Party, which had been the Eastern Party, became the Northern Party, had spent the summer at Cape Adair and they realised the incredible difficulties of doing scientific work in those circumstances. Uh, one of the windiest places on earth, of course. Uh, very difficult to get away from Cape Adair uh, because the mountain range was right at the doorstep of Cape Adair. Uh, Borchgrevink found that because it was so far north and a place where the ocean currents collided, any sea ice that formed was quickly blown out by storms. So travelling up and down the coast over the sea ice was almost impossible. They were able to, to move across Robertson Bay because the sea ice stayed in there better, uh, but to move anywhere along the coast was impossible. So I think Campbell's party really uh, really came to the conclusion that that Bortkovink had considerable difficulties which hadn't been recognised at the time. And with Sir Clements Markham poo-pooing anyone that wasn't in his stable, it's probably very hard to get any recognition at the time. Sir Clements Markable was ropeable when Borchgevink got the £40,000 of funding because that was at exactly the time when Markham was trying to get funding for the what became the Discovery Expedition. And I think when Borchgevink got the £40,000 Markham had only got together, I think, £12,000 after two years of lobbying everybody. So he was very, very unimpressed uh, that this upstart Norwegian had got the funding. Uh, so he never liked Borchgrevink and did a lot of mean things to undermine Borchgrevink's credibility that before and after the expedition. That fits with my understanding of Markham's MO. You've visited the huts at Cape Adair. You're probably, yes, probably I, the only person I know who has. What, what's it like to, to walk into those, those sites? Uh, well, well the, the, the huts left over from the Southern Cross expedition, they're still standing, a testament to the good quality workmanship involved. Uh, the roof... Borchgevink had taken the roof off the second hut, the store's hut. Uh, inside, very dark, no windows. So it's amazing that these guys didn't go completely spare over the winter. Uh, pretty shabby inside, as you would expect of a, an Antarctic hut. So I got there in 1999 and had time inside the hut. In the meantime, the New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust has uh, moved on from the other huts and they've been working on restoration of the artefacts and the hut itself. So it's probably in much better condition as a, 
uh, a historic site now than when I was able to visit it. Uh, so yeah, I, I am one of the few people that's been lucky enough to visit all the huts on this side of the world. And uh, yeah, Cape Adair is a really interesting place and I, I just thank my lucky stars that we were able to land and spend some time there. And what's left of Campbell's hut? Uh, well, I don't know what's left of it now. When when I was there, uh, there was just sort of, I, I think, two walls and a bit of lean-to roof, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, there, there wasn't much of it left, and I think it's collapsed now, if, if I'm correct. They wrote of the weather at the time, expecting the, the hut to actually lift off its, off its mountings or lose its roof just because the weather is so extreme there. Yeah, and of, of course, Campbell's party, they were not carpenters, uh, that they were scientists and uh, naval men. Uh, so they, they, they weren't really fit for the job of constructing the hut. So it, even though the hut was prefab, it probably wasn't as well assembled as Borchkovink's huts were. And your association with the Antarctic continues now in a, in a role very similar to the one that I, I perform on the ships. Yeah, so I'm retired from full-time work now, which is fantastic, and it gives me the opportunity to go along as a, a, a naturalist historian guide zodiac driver on different expedition ships which is really lovely because you you meet people that are just fully engaged with the whole antarctic experience and people that are bubbling with enthusiasm quite often their first trip south although it's quite often you meet people that are recidivists you know <laughs> that they, they, they just keep going back uh, and I can see the appeal to that because I do too. So uh, it, it's really nice to, to be able to introduce new people to all the, the pleasures and the interest and the history and the wildlife and the, the landscapes and the, the, the icescapes of the Antarctic experience. Uh, and also to meet people that have been coming back and have, have more in-depth discussions with them. Uh, what, what's not to like about being in? able to indulge in, in your interest. Thank you so much for your time, Andrew. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been a pleasure having you along. Greetings to Zoe this episode, whose eye for the heartbeat of a situation makes her photography as good as it is. Take care and appreciate the coffee.